Well, let's pray together. Father, we can hardly render to you what is owed to you when we open our mouths to sing. But Lord, we wish to worship you. Lord, we want you to cause us to love you and to esteem you and to honor you and to praise you with the praise with which you are due. Father, would it be that you would make this word to strengthen our hearts for that kind of praise. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever heard of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions? When Jonathan Edwards was 19 years old, he wrote out for himself 70 statements of resolve about how he wanted to pursue godliness. And he committed himself to read and to reread these resolutions once a week throughout his life. And his resolutions are now about 300 years old, but they are filled with this very uncommon earnestness about holiness and about how to seek the glory of God above all things. I first encountered these when I was in seminary and heard of them and then read some of them. And over the years, one resolution in particular has stood out to me, and it's, it's resolution number nine. And resolution number nine says this. He says, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Keep this in mind. He's 19 years old, and he says, this is one of my resolutions. I'm going to come back to this every single week to remind myself to do this. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Now, this is one resolution definitely that very few 19-year-olds today would undertake. In fact, I would argue that very few 19-year-olds of any day think about their own dying like this. And many adults don't think about their own dying like this. And yet Edward says that he endeavored to fill his waking hours with thoughts about his own death. Now, here's the question. Why was Edwards so fixated in this resolution upon his own death? Was he just kind of a morose guy? Just a weird, depressing dude? I mean, what's going on with this guy? I don't think he was either of those things. I think that Edwards knew something. Edwards knew that it's a characteristic folly of youth to go on about your life as if you will live forever. Those of you who are young and who have your health, and even if you're not that young, if, just if you have your health, you tend to put out of your mind unpleasant thoughts about the end of your own days. It seems so remote and far off and in the future that folks 
who are young and who, are, who have their health, they feel that they can just kick that can down the road, live for today, put off worrying about that great calamity that's going to come upon all of us at some point. Most of us, many of us, can live well into adulthood with a kind of thoughtlessness about ultimate things. But Edwards is recognizing that this is a foolish way to live. In fact, his resolve to think about his own death actually reflects a scriptural resolve, doesn't it? How many of you know Psalm 90, verses 10 and 12? It says this, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And what the psalmist is doing there is essentially the same thing that Edwards was talking about. The psalmist is praying for God to help him think about the brevity of his own life. That one day he is going to die and that all that is going to matter at that day is whether or not you are right with God. That's all that's going to matter. Sadly, this is not where a lot of people are today. A lot of people today are doing all that they can to avoid thinking about the fact that they are going to die and that they are going to have to face their maker in judgment. And it's becoming easier for a lot of folks to do this today. We can be endlessly distracted. We can fill most of our waking moments with work, with family, responsibilities, and then fill in all the other gaps with amusements or being connected to some sort of a screen. And so we don't have to think about ultimate things. That is, until the report comes back from the doctor showing that the scans weren't benign, or until out of nowhere a spouse dies, or God forbid, out of nowhere a, a child dies, or, or even until the years just begin to catch up with you, and you reach that age where you realize that the years behind you that you've already lived are a lot longer than the ones that are in front of you. And you begin to wonder, where has that time gone to? And you begin to worry, what will I do when my time comes? You see a lot of men going through a midlife crisis at this point. When they begin thinking about those kinds of things. And the thoughts of your own demise, which you've been putting off in favor of a variety of amusements, those thoughts can begin to haunt and to terrify and so the, the point of the message today is not to rebuke anybody for failing to think about ultimate things. That's actually not the point of the message. The point of the message and of this passage of Scripture that we're about to look at is to tell you what you need to know when you do begin to think about ultimate things. When you finally get to the point that you're thinking about death and when the horror of that prospect begins to terrify you, what is the only thing that will drive that terror away? That's what this message is about. I want you to open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 28. In this text, Paul is addressing a group of believers in Corinth who are not thinking about their own deaths rightly. 
There are some in that congregation who were saying that there was no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. We saw that in verse 12. They believe that when we die, our bodies stay dead. Now, maybe our spirits are alive and go to heaven or something, but our bodies stay dead. And Paul is taking an entire chapter to confront what is essentially a corruption of the gospel message. And so the last time we were studying this in the previous paragraph, we saw Paul speak hypothetically about the hopelessness that would result if there were no resurrection from the dead. Jesus would still be dead. The apostles would be liars. Your faith would be useless and the curse of death would still remain for us if, if there were no resurrection of the dead. But in this passage, in verses 20 to 28, Paul ends the hopeless hypotheticals and he declares the hope of the resurrection. And this resurrection is the only thing that can allay our fears and our terrors when it comes to our own death. And so this passage divides into three parts. In verses 20 to 22, he's going to talk about the fact of the resurrection. In verses 23 to 24, he talks about the order of the resurrection. And in verses 25 to 28, he talks about the reign of the resurrection. So the fact of the resurrection, the order of the resurrection, and then the reign, R-E-I-G-N, of the resurrection. All right, so the first thing here is the fact of the resurrection. Everybody look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, it starts off by saying, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead because he's just finished outlining what it would look like if Christ weren't raised from the dead. But he's saying, no, 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 no. Those, those are hypotheticals. Christ is raised from the dead, from, from the dead. So he came back to life after dying on the cross. Now, there are several things that we need to note about what Paul's saying about this resurrection, embedded right here in this verse. Four things I want you to know in particular. First thing about this resurrection is that it's physical. Christ's body was dead, and then it came back to life. It was not an apparition. It was not a ghost. It was not a hallucination. There was a dead body, and then that physical dead body came back to life. The Bible says the apostles touched Jesus' body. Remember that with Thomas? Jesus ate with his disciples. It was a kind of a physical body that could eat. It was a physical resurrection. If you don't see anything else, don't miss that. Jesus' resurrection was physical. The second thing about it is that this resurrection is by God's power. Now, it doesn't mention God explicitly in verse 20. But notice that that verb, has been raised from the dead, that's a, that's a passive verb. Now, you remember back to English grammar, you know what that means, okay? When there's a passive verb, the subject doesn't perform the action of the verb, it receives the action of the verb. And so in this case, Jesus didn't raise himself, rather someone else did. It's someone implied from the context. Who is the one who raised Jesus from the dead? God. In fact, Paul says it in so many words earlier in chapter 6 and in verse 14, where Paul says, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So God, the Father, I believe, raising Jesus 
means that God is vindicating Jesus. Also, it shows that God has absolute authority over all things, which we'll see is really the point of this entire passage to prove, to prove Jesus's and then, and, then his, and then to prove his father's sovereignty over everything. And so by God's power raising Jesus, it's showing that God is sovereign over all. So the resurrection, re, the resurrection is physical. It's by God's power. Third, it's current. Notice that this verb is that he has been raised from the dead. It's in the perfect tense, which indicates a past action with ongoing results. You need to think about this for a minute. This is not just a grammatical point. This is a reality point. Jesus not only was alive, he is alive right now. He is seated at the right hand of power right now. He is alive and he is in a physical body right now. We believe as Christians, he is in a physical body right now. He's not a ghost or an apparition. It was physical then, it is physical now, and it will always be that way. He will never be unresurrected. So it's physical by God's power, it's current, and then last, fourth, it's just the beginning. And this is probably the main point of the passage here. His resurrection is just the beginning. Notice that it says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Sleep is a biblical metaphor for dying, and it suggests that death is temporary, which, in fact, it was for Jesus. But not just for him, because the text says that he is the first fruits of those who have died. First fruits is another biblical metaphor referring to the first in a series to follow. In fact, that term first fruits has, has roots, likely, in Leviticus chapter 23, in verses 10 to 12, which is a law in the Old Testament requiring the Jews to bring the first portion, the first fruits of their grain harvest, as an offering to the Lord. The Jews were not allowed to eat of the harvest themselves until the first fruits had been offered to God. After the offering, however, the people were allowed to enjoy the harvest as well. I think Paul may have had that strict order in mind as he's arguing that Christ must rise first and then those who are in Christ will be raised after him. So calling Jesus the first fruits means that God has set in motion a chain of events with the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is the first fruits, then he is the guarantee of a harvest to come. Do you see the point here? What God did to raise Jesus is just the beginning. He is going to raise us up as well through the same power. So verses 21 and 22 explain how one man's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. So everybody look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. One man brought death into the world. By the same token, there is one man who has introduced resurrection into the world. But they didn't just bring death and resurrection into the world. The first man's Adam, the second man is Jesus, obviously. They didn't just bring death and resurrection into the world. They brought them to people, to us. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we know, 
going back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam that in the day you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. You remember that? You can eat from any of the trees of the, of the garden, but from this one tree, if you eat from that, the, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And what happens to Adam? Eventually, Adam dies. And then you turn the pages a couple from Genesis chapter 1. You come to Genesis chapter 5, and you get what is called the roll call of death. You get all of these descendants of Adam. They're listed out, how many years they lived, and guess what it says about each of them? And then he died. And it's over and over, all these descendants of Adam, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And guess what? The list goes on beyond what's listed in the Bible. Every single person after Adam dies, all of them. Adam is the first, as the first of our race, was our representative such that his ruin has become our ruin. Romans chapter 5 says it this way in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. But not only death. Romans 5 teaches that Adam passes on to all of us his sin, his guilt, his condemnation, and as a result of that, his death. All of this ruin is ours because of Adam. We are all sons and daughters of Adam. This is the doctrine of original sin. One man brought all of this calamity into the world and brought it to us personally. In the same way that it took one man to ruin us, it would take one man to save us. Verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. This does not mean that all people everywhere are going to be made alive to blessedness at the end of the age. That's not what this means. It means all who are in Christ shall be made alive. So think about this. Who inherits death because of their relationship with Adam? Well, everybody. Because every person in the world is related to Adam by birth. But not every person is in Christ by birth. You can only be in Christ by new birth. In other words, only those who have repented of their sin and who trust in Jesus can count on this promise to be raised up to blessedness. It's for all those who are in Christ. So the whole key here is in believing that the one man, Jesus, has won for us salvation from death. That's the key here. He has been raised, and so all of us who are his people can count on being raised as well and being raised physically by God's power in just the way that Jesus is raised. And I think that this is the part that is often so difficult for us. How many of you have had your moments where you have felt the dread and the terror of death come over you. Where you start thinking about your own dying and that you aren't going to live forever. And you start thinking about the loss. When that happens, how do you deal with that crippling, depression-inducing, despair-invoking kind of fear when it comes over you? The only way that you can deal with that kind of fear is to trust in the one 
who raised Jesus from the dead. To know that just as God did not abandon his Holy One to decay, neither will he abandon you if you've trusted in Christ. That fear that so many of us experience, the fear you have, of your life going out of you, of losing control, of losing consciousness, of closing your eyes for the last time, of not being able to breathe, being put into the ground, your body disintegrating into the dust. This text and these truths are for that fear. You don't have to fear those things if you are in Christ. God can no more abandon you to the dust than he could have abandoned Jesus, if you are in him. God sent his son into the world, in fact, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent Jesus into the world to deal with the fact that you have to die. Your sin has rendered a death sentence over you. And if you haven't thought about that, it's time to start thinking about that. Every single one of us has that obituary from Genesis 5 over us. Unless the Lord returns and one day day they're going to say about us, and then he died. Your sin has rendered a death sentence over you. But God sent Jesus to rescue you from it. And one day after your eyes have closed for the last time in death, one day this text is teaching God is going to call you forth in your eyes will open up again. And what was dead will be swallowed up by life. And your eyelids will open. And you will breathe. The air will go back into your lungs. And you will see your Savior face to face. So this text is teaching you, you have nothing to fear if you belong to him. Everything to fear if you don't. Someone will say, well, yes, Denny, I'm a Christian. But I tell you, I still wrestle with despair and anxiety about dying. I know these things are true, but I just, I I still have these fears that grip me from time to time. And I just want to say, you're not the only one, okay? Um, I don't know if Jim shared this or not. He recently read the book In the Hiding Place by Corey Tinboom. And um, I don't know if he shared this story or not, but um, in that book, she tells the story of how she survived a Nazi concentration camp after her family was imprisoned, and many of them died in that, that, that concentration camp. But they were imprisoned as a punishment for hiding Jews from the Nazis. They were actually Christians, but they hid Jews and helped them escape the Holocaust, and they got sent to a concentration camp. And um, she and her family were Christians, and they did all that they could to rescue the Jews from the Holocaust when when the Germans invaded the the Netherlands. They They were Dutch. But early in the book, The Hiding Place, she tells the story how her father helped her to overcome this crippling fear of death that came over her after she saw a dead body for the first time. And Her father, she said, it used to be in those days, would just come in and tuck her and her sisters in every night. And she would wait and wouldn't go to sleep until her father had come in to to tuck them in. And the night that, the day that she saw the dead body, that later that evening, he came to tuck them in. And when he came into the room, Corey shot up 
in her bed and she just begins sobbing to him. And she looks at him and she says, I need you. You can't die. You can't. She's just terrified. And, and she says this, and I'm just going to read to you from the book. She says, Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey, he began gently, when you and I take the train to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train? Exactly, he said. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we're going to need these things too. Don't run out ahead of him. Corey, when the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will, have, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. Isn't it good that our Father knows us and that he knows our weaknesses? And yet he still loves us and cares for us and provides for us in the moment that we need it. Psalm 103 verses 13 to 16 says this, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He knows our bodies, what we're composed of. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Did you hear that? Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He knows all of our weaknesses. He knows what we're scared about. He knows what we're facing. And the Bible says that your father loves you and he knows all of these things. He's not going to leave you to your fears and your doubts in the moment that you need him. He's given you his spirit precisely because he aims to give you power over your fears and your doubts. He wants to banish unbelief from your heart altogether. Now, you're, you're a work in progress right now. If you're a Christian, you are a work in progress progress. You are not now what you are going to be then. I'm a work in progress. All of us are. What that means right now is that all of us are going to have our moments, aren't we? We're going to have our moments where we feel like we're hanging on by a thin thread, where we feel scared and we feel fearful. So when you're having one of your moments, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. I want you to do this. First of all, I want you to cry out to God in that moment. I want you to do what Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says. It says this, do not be anxious about anything. It's a command not to worry. Did you know that? Don't be anxious about anything. But how do you battle anxiety? How do you battle fear? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You're scared of death, tell him you're scared of death. Tell him. Ask him to deliver you. Let your request be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So in the moment that you feel the fear, you pray to God in that moment. You cry out to God and you keep praying until he answers, no, no matter how long it takes. This could be a, your daily prayer for weeks or months, but you keep praying 
The very act of praying and of desperation before God, of asking God to meet you in your weakness, that very act is an act of faith. God is cultivating trust in you as you cry out to him in those weak moments. Don't turn from him in the weak moments. You turn to him in the weak moments. That's why the weak moments exist, to get you to do that. You cry out. And you ask your father to give you confidence now that he will give you the courage you need when you need it. And then do one more thing. You need to avail yourself of the means of grace that God has given you. There are a number of means by which God intends to connect you to God's daily sanctifying grace. But I want to suggest that you remember one particular thing. Gathering with the people of God for worship and for fellowship. When you are fearful and desperate, that is not a time to pull away from God's people. It is not the time to do that. You need to be pressing in. In fact, you should be pressing in now, even if you're not going through anything. You need to be pressing in now so that that resource is there when you need it then. But whether you're there now or not, you need to press into God's people, not pull away from them. When you're desperate and under a cloud and you don't feel like singing, it's a balm to the soul to come among the people of God, many of whom have, who have experienced the same kind of suffering and fears that you have, and many of whom who have learned to walk with God when they feel like they're hanging on by a thin thread. You need to gather with God's people, hear the word preached, partake of this communion table, and avail yourself of the means that God has given you to be strengthened by his spirit, working through his people in your life. The people in this congregation are supposed to be God's hands and feet for you. So Paul talks about the fact of the resurrection. That's the longest point, okay? Second point is this, the order of the resurrection. Everybody look at verse 23 but each in his own order. Now, Christ has been raised from the dead, right? But now he's saying, and then he said Christ is the first fruits, but he says each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, Paul's very keen for us to understand that resurrection of the dead, it doesn't happen all at once. Notice that he says each in his own order. Now, that word order was originally a military term referring to a grouping of soldiers, like a division or a, t a detachment of soldiers or a ranking among soldiers. I think that Paul may have chosen that term that's listed as order here. I think he may have chosen that term because of the military image that he's about to use to describe Christ's rule over everything, over all of his enemies. So the order that Paul describes is really one of rank. The first rank is Jesus, the Messiah, who is leading the way and representing all of his people. Then Jesus is followed by those who belong to Christ. And so in this metaphor, Jesus' people rank second in order to their king, Jesus. And so it's from the order of rank, Jesus' first rank, we're underneath him. It's from that order of rank that we derive an order of time. That Christ's resurrection happens first and then that of his people. So the resurrection, the Bible teaches, is actually rolled out in stages. Stage one is Christ and stage two is the rest of us believers at the time of Jesus' coming. 
So this resurrection is rolled out in stages. Then verse 24, it says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule every, and every authority and power. Notice that there's a sequence of three items from verse 23 to verse 24. It's signified by the word then. First, the first item is Christ's resurrection. Then the second item is our resurrection. Then the third item begins at verse 24. Then comes the end. Now some people read this and they think, well, he's really just saying that all this is happening at the same time. It's not making a temporal point, but a logical point. I don't, I, I don't agree with that. Um, I'm not convinced that's the best way to read this. There's no question that there's a time sequence between the first two items, Christ's resurrection and ours. There's at least 2,000 years of a time sequence between when Christ was raised and when he's going to return and all the, when the rest of us are raised. So if there's a time sequence there, it makes sense that there could be a time sequence between the second two items between our resurrection and what he calls the end. But it's really not Paul's aim to spell out all the, tales, all the details about the millennial reign of Christ, although that's important. The main point here is that main sequence that he wants us to see, which is Christ's resurrection and then our resurrection and then the end. But what happens before the end? Before the end, it says Christ rules over all. Paul says that Christ abolishes all rule, authority, and power, which is no doubt a reference to the fact that the Lord Jesus will one day return and he's going to subjugate every human authority to himself. He may also have in mind demonic powers that underwrite human authorities, but he's definitely talking about human authorities. So think human governments. Think the city government of Louisville. Think the Kentucky state government. Think the United States of America. Think every nation on the planet. They're going to be subjugated to Christ's rule. Not implicit, explicitly subjugated. What does that mean? It means that if the United States is around when Jesus returns, and if we are still the world's lone superpower, at that moment we will cease being the world's lone superpower. Jesus is going to subjugate us to his will. He will abolish the Constitution. There will be no other authority. He will say something like, you are no longer governed by the consent of the governed. You are governed by me. Do homage to the son lest you perish in the way. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion and he is exalted above all the peoples. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to say something like that to, to all the great ones of the earth until there is only one great one left standing, him. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's when we're all going to hear the angels shout. As the Bible says in Revelation eleven fifteen. the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He will have no rivals. So do you understand that Christ is not just the first to be raised, but that he is the first in rank? Christ's resurrection first shows us that God's aim is for him to be preeminent over every other power and authority on the earth. It's designed to elicit from you and from me glory and praise and honor to Jesus and not to wait until the last day to render what is due to him. We are called to bear witness to his reign and to his kingdom right now. 
We are supposed to be ambassadors of this kingdom right now, preaching the gospel of his death and resurrection and his exaltation and compelling people to do homage to the Son, lest they perish in the way. But we will never offer that message if we have not believed it ourselves, that Jesus is the world's only true sovereign. And the key thing that you have to notice about Jesus' rule here is that he's not just ruling over his enemies. He's not just ruling over us. He's ruling over death. And that's the last thing. We have the fact of the resurrection, the order of the resurrection, and finally, the reign of the resurrection. Talking about the reign of Christ. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Notice that this verse includes a loose quotation from what we heard read before the service began. Psalm 10 verse Psalm 110 verse 1. Psalm 110 verse 1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so it is. Just like the psalm says that Jesus will rule until all of his enemies are set underneath his sovereign authority. This includes all human rule, authority, and power that he mentioned in that last verse. But then look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the sense of this is clear. Death is the enemy. And just as Jesus came to subjugate human authorities, so he has also come to subjugate this spiritual enemy called death. But uh, sometimes the grammar in the original is awkward here, and um, some English translations lose something of Paul's original intent. So I'm going to give you a very literal translation of verse 26. The last enemy is being destroyed, namely death. Did you catch that? The last enemy is being destroyed, namely death. You know what that means? It means that we don't have to wait for the defeat of death to begin. It's already begun. It awaits a final consummation when everybody's raised, right? But make no mistake, Jesus has already struck the decisive blow against death. He's struck the decisive blow against your death. The resurrection has already begun, and he is going to finish what he started when God raises all all of us up with him. How is it that Jesus has already begun to destroy death? Well, Paul explains. Look at verse 27, first part of it. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. You see, this is the reign of the resurrection. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He is sovereign over death. All things includes death. God has put it in subjection under his feet, and he has put everything else in creation under Jesus' feet. Notice again another quotation, this time from Psalm chapter 8 and verse 7, which we also read before the service began, or before the sermon. It's one of the most well-known messianic psalms in the, in the Psalter. God told Adam to rule over his creation, which neither he nor we ever did perfectly, but Jesus does fulfill this perfectly. He fulfills Psalm 8-7 perfectly so that there is no one left to oppose God's rule when Jesus is exalted in glory. But look at this next part of verse 27. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain 
that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Now, I know the pronouns get a little confusing at this point, but track along here. Who put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet, according to Psalm 8-7, and really even according to Psalm 110? If you read those psalms, it's God who does it. Just like God raised Jesus from the dead, God puts all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But notice that when Paul says God, he's not referring to the deity generically, but to God the Father in particular. So this is a Trinitarian statement. In fact, Paul often uses the word God to refer to the Father in particular, including in this very passage. In verse 24, Christ delivers the kingdom to whom? To God the Father, right? Same word for God, but it's God the Father. So what does this mean? It means that God the Father is not subjected to God the Son. In fact, the reverse is true, and that becomes clear in verse 28. Everyone look at verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, to God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God, God the Father, may be all in all. So this verse is basically saying the same thing that verse 24 did. In verse 24, Christ hands over his kingdom, meaning he hands over his rule to God the Father. But now, in verse 28, it's saying that a part of his handing over involves the son's subjection to his father. And it's at this point we understand that this is really nothing new or surprising. Jesus has subjected himself to his father throughout his ministry. And it's no surprise that he does the same thing here. It's saying at the very end. Uh, in fact... Um, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that Jesus obeyed his father to the point of death. He obeyed his father to the point of death. Jesus himself says in John chapter 5 and verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus himself said that he subjected himself to the father. Now, there are some people who read Words like we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, or like I just read to you from Philippians and John 5. Some people read that, and they read Paul's words in this text to mean that the Son of God is somehow less than God because he's submitting to God, to God the Father. And so they think that his subjection here means that there's some sort of inequality of his being with God the Father. So I'll just give you one example. Uh, from one commentator, a guy named Richard Hayes. He says this. He says, It's impossible to avoid the impression that Paul is operating with what would later come to be called a subordinationist Christology. The doctrine of the Trinity was not yet formulated in Paul's day, and his reasoning is based solely on the scriptural texts themselves. End quote. Richard Hayes, along with a number of other commentators, they'll read this and they'll go, Well, this, Paul just didn't know any better. You know, they hadn't had the Council of Nicaea yet, and they didn't have the Nicene Creed, and so he just, he's slipping into a little Arianism here. He doesn't believe that Jesus is fully God. Let me just say to you, nothing could be further from the truth. That is such a misreading of, of this text. And if you're reading the text this way, don't read it that way. There are a couple reasons for this. First, notice that Paul says, the Son himself will be subjected to the Father. 
That's the only place in all of Paul's writings where we see Paul using the word son all by itself to refer to Jesus. It is precisely Jesus' sonship that not only distinguishes him from the Father, but that also makes him partake of the same essence of the Father, so that both Father and Son fully possess this quality of deity. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father, such that they are both fully and equally God. Second thing is this. This reference to the Son himself is profound because it reveals something of the inner workings of the Godhead in the economy of salvation, though not in the, the being of the eminent trinity. What that means is that the Son as mediator can be subject to his Father, even as the Son as deity is in no way inferior to his Father as deity. In fact, this is the classic way that Christians from all times and all places have, have read texts like this. In fact, Augustine, in his book on the Trinity, he insists when he's reading these verses, the same verses we're looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Augustine insisted that these verses may present us with a paradox but not a contradiction. And he says this, The Son is equal to the Father, and the Father is greater than the Son. The one is to be understood in virtue of the form of God, the other in virtue of the form of a servant, without any confusion. And this is the rule for solving this question in all the sacred scriptures. Bottom line is this. If your interpretation of Paul makes Paul into an Arian, somebody who thinks Jesus isn't fully God, you're missing the point. Jesus is the Son of God. Paul believed that Jesus was fully God. Nevertheless, he also believed that the Son subjects himself to the Father. And the point here is simply that the Son's rule over death and over powers and rulers and authorities, his rule exists to make God all in all. God the Father all in all. That means that God's rule is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And it's going to happen by means of the obedience of a son of man who is also the very son of God. And so the question is, do you believe that? Because if you don't believe in Christ's reign over everything, you're never going to believe in Christ's reign over your death. And you're never going to be escaped be able to escape the fear and the terror that attends the thoughts of your own death. Do you believe that Jesus is going to rule over your death? And that God the Father will step in at the crucial moment to raise you just as he raised Jesus? I think that that is the main question before all of us this morning. If you were here this morning and you know that you're not a Christian. This is a que the, the main question for you. Because whether you realize it or not, well, you should realize it, every single one of us, we are on this assembly line of death. Which means every single one of us is going to die. It is common to humanity that we have to deal with this great calamity at the end. And it is time to stop putting off thinking about that. God designed this curse to get us to turn to him. The only remedy from this curse is what God has done for us through his son. Because of your sin, you deserve the curse. But not because you deserve it, but because God is gracious. He decided to send his son to take the penalty for you. So he died, and then God raised him again so that he could give eternal life to you. 
And the Bible says you don't get connected to that by doing good works. You get connected to that by believing in Jesus, by trusting in him alone, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus and trust in him, the Bible says you will be saved. And the resurrection that's promised here will be yours. And the death that humanity has feared from all time, you don't have to fear that anymore. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for all those who are here who may not know you. I pray that you would open up their hearts to believe the things being spoken of by Paul. That they would believe that they are sinners in need of a resurrection and in need of a Savior who can bring it. Lord, would you open up hearts and minds to believe this right now? Father, I pray for all our kids, our kids that we're trying to evangelize. Father, would you save them? Cause faith to spark in their little hearts right now and to believe. Lord, I pray for all your people in here who are struggling and wrestling with fears and with doubts about their own lives and some of them about their health and about dying. Some of them with specific things to be worried about and some of them maybe not with specific things. But Lord, I pray that you would draw near to your people with the comfort and the assurances of the gospel that you have raised up Jesus, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And you will raise us up too. You will not leave us or forsake us. You will open our eyes. You will fill our lungs with breath. And we will see and praise you forever. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.